You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. And we get the special privilege of wrapping up book club number two today, which means we get to talk about this book that we all read um, and some cultural significances, which I think is going to be super great um, because this is a huge part of my own lifestyle personally. And it also means we get to know what the next book club book is. And this is probably my favorite part of these episodes because I there's suspense and then yeah. we're going to find something out by the end. And I'm so excited. I so I know it's great. Great. Uh, so, Rachel, take it away. What are we discussing today about, about our book club? So this is our wrap-up episode for the second book club pick, our first nonfiction pick. And mm-hmm. we read Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale by Adam Minter. It could also be subtitled, um, let's see, What Happens to Your Stuff After You Drop It Off at Goodwill? Um, <laughs> which is a, a question that I'd always wondered. And I mm-hmm. think for a lot of you know the the relevance to us as church ladies is church ladies are have long been pioneers in the sort of recycling of used clothes and housewares we all i mean most of our churches have rummage sales we have food banks and clothing banks and diaper drives and we you know we're huge on helping connect people with stuff they don't need to people who need stuff. Mm-hmm. But one piece of that is what happens when your rummage shell is over, you pack up all those extra donations, you don't have space to store them at the church, you should go drop them off at Goodwill or Salvation Army or you know, some other donation center, and then you lose track of them and what happens to them. And that's a huge and very interesting and relevant question for us to consider because it has implications for how we can do a better job of loving our neighbor with secondhand stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was the book, and I found it really incredibly eye-opening. The author took us on this journey around the world. We went to Japan. We went to Africa. We went to down to Mexico, and we just saw all the ways in which secondhand goods, especially he focused on clothing and electronics, mm-hmm. take on a second life or don't take on a second life, which is perhaps more concerning and I, I learned a lot, had a lot of curiosity sort of satisfied by this book. But I'm curious to know what you guys thought of it. First impressions, what are your immediate takeaways from this? It filled me with dread. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm just going to... That's a raving gonna, review. I'm going to throw it out there. So this, <laughs> this book, it spoke to me in particular because in a past life, I worked at a boutique Mm. nonprofit resale shop here in the St. Louis area and just having to man intake and know sort of what goes into assessing value to things and then, I mean, because not everything hits the sales floor. Right. And I have to believe that that's not what happens at Goodwill 100% of the time. Oh no, it's Mm -mm. a small percentage. Um, Mm -hmm. So the stuff we didn't put on the rack we gave to a local methodist church i think we had a relationship with them and it just like i don't know it fills me with dread because like we must have all of these like stained clothes with like holes in them just like circum like circulating around society like i don't know at some point i'm like just throw it out (laughs) it makes me feel so wasteful like i was i was struck with the sting of the law like within the first chapter (laughs) Hmm. 
Yeah, there's a there's a lot of law in this book for sure. If you're gonna pick a law or gospel angle, this is more law than gospel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's very little Jesus in this book. Let's be honest. Zero <laughs> percent. Although someone does. Oh, is that a spoiler? Someone does find Jesus. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> oh. I I enjoyed it. I'm not usually a nonfiction reader. I try and push myself to read nonfiction just because I know it's not my preference. And so I always have more, I don't know. It always takes, I, I don't know what it is. But anyway, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Yay. it. It was interesting. There were, there were some stories that helped sort of drive along the bigger picture that he was talking about. So there were some sort of human, human, storylines that that I could follow along with and I found it challenging in places and definitely found a few places where it was really challenging some of my uh my biases that I wasn't even aware of brought some of those to light so that was that was interesting to me I was I was really looking forward to it going into it because pretty much my entire wardrobe is secondhand clothing and I'm not afraid to tell people that because when I was growing up, at least, right. you know, there's there's a stigma about buying secondhand, mm-hmm. or at least there used to be. Millennials may have changed that uh, because we don't have money. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's it's I feel like in vogue for, for yeah, it's like to yeah. shop secondhand because I'm taking care of the world. So I was really interested going into it to know more about the process and the the life cycle of clothing, uh, maybe get a better idea of of uh, where the clothing that I buy from Goodwill actually comes from and what does happen to the rest of it. Because because I buy from Goodwill, I also donate back to secondhand because, uh, you know, I, that I kind of take it as an opportunity to rotate through my closet because mm-hmm. I'm not spending hundreds of dollars on clothing. I'm spending like 20 or 30 so I can rotate through clothing a lot faster. But what does that actually mean when I'm rotating through my own clothing <laughs> that quickly? What does that mean for the rest of the life cycle of, of secondhand clothing? So I think I was most intrigued by all of the cultural influences to the same, maybe to the same like types of clothing or the same or, or articles or stuff they're, different cultures have different ways of looking at these items, and they put different values on different pieces of of stuff depending on where they are in the world uh, and what their culture collectively thinks about about secondhand in general and all of this stuff that kind of comes through the market. So I I always like learning about cultures though. So that that was that's the part that really sticks in my head. Yeah, and I think, you know, looking at some of our readers' first impressions on the book club event page, you see people seeing, you know, talking about how relevant this is to them as they're cleaning out, you know, say, the home of a loved one who's passed on. You know, before about 100, 100, 150 years ago, our relationship with stuff was very different. Stuff was precious. Stuff was, you know, made by hand and made to last. And then the Industrial Revolution comes through. And suddenly people have more stuff than they know what to do with. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem that has continued to balloon to this day. And so we as a culture have the very unique uh, challenge of trying to cope with a glut of extra stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just keeps coming. Mm-hmm. Um, one comment that I found during this initial reaction uh, question was, 
it's someone who works in the museum field, uh, mm-hmm. Brittany Shelp on our, our Facebook page. She says, I work in the museum field, so my relationship with stuff is already very complex, both in my work life and personal life. But I was surprised that this book got me thinking about stuff in a totally different way. Um, so, it, you know, and she goes on to talk about her postcard collection, which she's always cherished and enjoyed. And now she's thinking, well, why? Why do why do we as humans collect stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so there are lots of larger questions, you know, not just about what happens to your belongings when you drop them off at a donation center, but what is, what is our, the amount of stuff we have and how we buy it and how we keep it and how we get rid of it, you know, talk about our humanity. So that was, that was a fun aspect of this book. And that's sort of what a lot of our discussion questions in the online book club had to to uh, do with. So I'm going to turn it over to each of you in turn, and I would would love it if you could pick out one question that we discussed online, and we can talk about it in a little bit greater detail here on air. One of the questions that was asked in the Facebook group was question number two. Historically, personal identity revolved around religion, civic participation, and pride of oftentimes small place. But as those traditional bonds disintegrate in the face of industrialization, urbanization, and secularization, brands and objects become a means to curate and project who we are. And for many Americans, objects packed into a home present the complete curated package. Which objects currently in your home communicate something deeply about, deeply personal about your identity, whether past, present, or aspirational future? What do the things you own say about who you are? Um, That question resonates with me because if you've ever been in my apartment, you would be like, what style is this? Modern circus chic? Like, what? Modern circus chic. Furnished by Barnum and Bailey. Like, I'm into, I'm very much into, like, interior design and, like, how your home should be a reflection of who you are. So I have a lot of, like, colors and tchotchkes and, you know, fake plants and a corner of my living room for my art table and... It's just very, it's very colorful. It's unique in a way that I want it to be unique. And it's perhaps most importantly, as it pertains to this question, it's nothing that I would have had growing up. Uh. (laughs) It is not the style of my mother or my grandmother. No one before me. So you're home full of your carefully curated possessions is about carving out a unique identity for yourself that sets you apart yes. from others in your life and how you grew up. That's correct. So it, it, it does. It is a reflection of at least the identity you want to project. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes the same for the clothes that we wear for sure. I remember our quiz, our fun quiz. And if you haven't <laughs> taken that, go back and find it. Which Lutheran lady are you? Um, we'll post the link in the Facebook group to bring yeah. it back to the top for the yes. many new new friends. That was a while ago. Right. <laughs> but, you know, one of the questions in that was, what's your fashion style? And, 
you know, uh, none of us would just put on a burlap sack and call it good. We all, we, or maybe we would and just add some accessories and be, <laughs> <laughs> be very all make it work. You can some, wear anything yeah. with earrings. <laughs> but all of us carefully choose our clothing, our home furnishings. I talked about how I choose the books on my shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, I want, you know, it, the, the pulp fiction tends to go upstairs and the, you know, Plutarch's lives is prominently displayed on my <laughs> on my bookshelf in the living room. You know, I want people to look at my shelf and say, "Ooh, that's a smart cookie." But I realize that you know that's that's me using stuff to present an identity, and it's just interesting the way that possessions play that role in our lives. My home experience is is almost opposite of Bree's, which I find interesting because we both have a crazy sense of style uh, and and color. But my home space, I mean, first of all, if you walked into our house, all you see is bikes because we have tons (laughs) of bikes. So that's an obvious one. A lot of our furniture choices and a lot of the stuff that we have is driven by our grandparents, which is like completely opposite of, of, I think, what this book was saying about millennial culture. Um, and young people not caring about about the stuff <laughs> right. that's handed down to them. I mean, my house is literally full of furniture from my husband's grandparents, and I'm it okay with that. It should be noted that Sarah and Luther were into grandparent uh, antiques before it was cool. I love grandparent antiques. So, so my my husband's uh, paternal grandpa made a ton of stuff. So a lot of the stuff that we have is is like really quality furniture that he made. And obviously, I don't want to get rid of that. Like that's really cool. And my husband's maternal grandmother lived on a farm and was really into cows which I think is awesome. Uh, so we just have a, a ton of her like farm tchotchke stuff. Like I, in one of our in one of our um, um, hutches that we use is like a display case for a lot of stuff. Like a whole shelf is just full of of farm tchotchke because I think it's really cool to to like connect back to the past. But I'm also a history nerd, so right. maybe that plays into well, it. I don't know. And, yeah. and for me too, you know, talking about you know kids cleaning out their parents homes because they are going to assisted living or they've passed away i dread the day that i have to do that Same. for my folks because it's like i don't want any of this i don't want your tea towels your china or like it's just so extra and but you don't want to get rid of it either because you feel like you're giving away a part of them mm-hmm. you're giving away their past you're giving away part of their life yeah or you know disposing of it in some way and so it's very you know stuff is very tightly bound up just before we move on to the the next question i want to point out a comment that a couple of of readers made about art Mm. that you know we had a few weeks back you know the people were sharing their their pictures of their their crucifixes and their christian art and this and, and we talked about it in depth here on the show too what what your how your christian artwork on the walls you know reveals your identity as a believer mm-hmm. to everyone that walks in your house and yet that too those are carefully curated mm-hmm. um i don't have any thomas kincaid up on my walls <laughs> for <laughs> a reason <laughs> because moments. it doesn't jive with my with my public persona uh, no offense to people that do because i know for some people it does but even the christian art we choose to put up on our walls is tied up in this identity question. Mm-hmm. The hymnal right, shelf need... is the most prominently displayed bookshelf in my house. <laughs> and no we surprise. are not surprised. <laughs> None. Zero surprise on my face right now. 
All right, Aaron, what do you want to talk about? I am choosing question number three to dig into. One of the things that surprised me about this book was how glowingly positive Minter was about the export of secondhand goods from first world to third world countries, at least when it's driven by third world demand and entrepreneurship. Uh, comes down hard on Chinese manufacturers flooding global markets with cheaply made new wares, but defends the rights of enterprising individuals to flood those same markets with used and reclaimed goods. What are the perspectives of those, especially current and former missionaries who've lived, served, and traveled overseas? Is his optimism about global secondhand economy justified? Or are there perhaps more negative consequences than he depicts in the book? We had two two of our missionary alumni, actually, who really gave some thought on this and, and gave a lot of, um, had, had some pretty in-depth discussion. Emily McDermott, an LCMS missionary alumni, shared her experience living in West Africa. She said, the textile and garment making industries are also suffering. The author blames that one on China. And yes, there is tons of Chinese fabric. It's cheaper than the African and European fabric in price and quality. But in Emily's experience, she finds it hard to believe that with the, quanti with the quantity of secondhand clothes that she's seen in markets and street stalls, that the secondhand market is not at fault, too. She said, yes, the secondhand industry creates jobs, but it also causes job loss for fabric sellers and seamstresses and tailors. Locally sewn clothes are significantly more expensive than secondhand market clothes. She also said many Africans see American and European lifestyles and want to emulate that. For better or worse, secondhand or Chinese is pretty much the only way to do that for the average Togolese. And I thought that was interesting because in a way, and actually uh, Heidi, Heidi was the other one who, who really dug into this. Heidi Norton is also a missionary alumni who served for many years in Guinea. And she points out that there's very few of us in the U.S. who are wearing clothing 100% made in America, especially when you think uh, about both the fabric <laughs> and the manufacturing. Because yep, that was what came that to my mind. That was such a trenchant point. Um, I thought that was amazing that she brought that yeah. up. Yeah. And I think about this because uh, I, I sew. I actually enjoy making clothes. I don't, I don't make everything that I wear, but at this point, there's definitely the vast majority of what I wear is things that I have made. But when it comes to trying, and, and so I feel, I feel good about that. One, I enjoy it, um, but it, I also know that the stuff that I make, um, it lasts a lot longer mm -hmm. uh, than the El Cheapo stuff that you can get. And I thought it was really interesting. You know, Aaron, there's yeah. a reason we all keep hinting at you to make us clothes. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I also, when I have purchased clothes more recently, I actually chose to purchase it from a um from a from a small maker. Uh, so she has her own business. Uh, she sells online. She employs local Americans in Philadelphia, I believe. Uh, and it's all made on a very small scale. 
And again, those things that I have, they have, I've been very impressed with the quality of them and I wear them. <laughs> You're all very familiar with them actually because I would, they're in constant rotation in my winter wardrobe, but it's not cheap. Uh, it's expensive and sewing isn't cheap to, no. for that matter, you know, sourcing fabric. If, if you're going to move outside of, um, just cheap quilting, cotton and polyester, uh, it, you, you pay for that. And so it's not cheap. You, you end up, you, so it's a challenge to, if you don't want to buy the, the, you know, the glut of readily available, very cheap stuff um, that's new, uh, then you either are going to pay more for the for the quality, which this applies to more than just clothes. Mm-hmm. So you're either you're either going to pay more upfront for quality, or else you're going to look at secondhand. And I tend to myself. I I'm a maker, so I just really enjoy it when I have the opportunity to make stuff myself. But otherwise, I do tend to look for either I'm going to save my save money to buy stuff that's higher quality that will last, mm-hmm. or else. I'll go to the, you know, I have my my bedroom furniture are antiques that I bought at an antique store. So they're already, you know, many, many decades old, uh, and I would expect them to continue. Whether or not it, it continues after me and has a life beyond that, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't have as much tied up in that, maybe because I don't have kids, and so I don't sort of think about who I would be passing stuff on to as far as heirlooms mm. go and that sort of thing. I like the idea of people wanting, <laughs> seeing seeing value in my stuff, but a lot of the stuff that I have, <laughs> obviously, I also, a lot of the value that I assign to it is really, I, I know that it's stuff that I have assigned the value to it because of the memories that I have with it. And I don't expect other people to have those same memories. I I recognize that it's precious to me because this makes me think of that experience with that that person and that relationship, things like that. That's interesting that you bring that up because that comes up again and again in the book that people seem to have this, you know, going back to this question of our identities being bound up in in stuff, people have this deep need to know that their stuff, even when they're done with it, that someone will find it valuable because it's this huge existential slap in the face when you put all your stuff out there and say, I don't need this anymore, but it's free. Take it. And everyone says, meh, I don't want it. You know, because that's mm-hmm. a reflection on you. That's your identity that they're saying, nah, don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, Pass. And it's very, it makes it very hard for people to let go of stuff because mm-hmm. they're afraid of reject it being rejected mm-hmm. and them being rejected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I loved Heidi's, Heidi's comment about how few people wear stuff that originates in their own cultures because exactly as you say Erin and I'm I'm not a maker I wish I was I, I have a different set of gifts but when I want to wear good brands I got to go dig through the racks at Salvation Army right. to find them because you know with our family budget it's never been in the cards for you know me to regularly buy really high quality well made enduring stuff but when I go to the shop at the thrift stores, I'm looking for the good stuff. And that was a whole chapter title in the book, mm-hmm. the good stuff. Everybody in the secondhand market is looking for the good stuff. And the good stuff is harder and harder and harder to find. Yeah, I was struck. So we're all like digging 
for that. Right. I was struck by how how the sort of ripple effect of having widely available, very cheap new things is distorting people's view of what a what the basic price point should be. Mm-hmm. So like Walmart right. could afford, he gave the example of Walmart dropping prices on jeans. Mm-hmm. And so now everybody has this idea that you should be able to get jeans for this much lower basic cost and we're no longer willing it it seems outrageous to pay these a higher cost for something because you can well you can get that at Walmart for this amount why should you why should you pay five times that amount elsewhere out. i know but but it has totally yeah. distorted our just basic idea of what what the average cost should be uh, and so anyway i found that very interesting it does wear out you're, yeah well you're exactly so and, right and one of the things that in my experience at that resale store is people would donate their eileen fisher sweaters and their bcbg max azria like the name brand designer things that are going to cost you a pretty penny are also the things that are going to last you five, mm-hmm. eight, ten years. That if you don't need mm-hmm. to make any modifications because of changes in your body, that's not something that you're going to throw away after a season or two. Unless it's unfashionable. And yeah. fashion, mm-hmm. of course, plays mm-hmm. a huge true. Yep. role in what people are buying and getting rid of at any given time. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, just to keep things moving, Sarah, give <laughs> us a question. What do you want to talk about? Okay, so I told you I wanted to talk about one, but as we were talking, I kind of want to talk about four now, because I think it makes more sense <laughs> with our conversation. Why? So, okay. so okay. <laughs> hopefully no one's upset about the fact that I'm totally changing this last minute while we're recording. So, this number four says... Not the, upset. Okay, good. The question at the heart of this book seems to be this what do we do with the stuff we no longer need or want the answer we hear according to minter is take your unwanted used item to this innovative sustainable solution at no cost to yourself and it will be reused indefinitely yet it turns out is probably this is probably a naive and unrealistic hope especially given the whims of fashion and the increasingly low quality and poor durability of the world's goods How would we change our personal buying, owning, keeping, and purging habits if we could honestly admit to ourselves that much of what we now possess will be of little interest or use to others when we're done with it? In other words, how, if at all, will the awareness we've gained from this book affect the practical choices we make on a day-to-day basis? So I mentioned this earlier, just, you know, talking through my initial impression of the book that, um, that I, I have my own life cycle of of clothing and shoes, especially. I I have a closet full of secondhand shoes because uh, as you know, as we're talking, I buy shoes secondhand, but that also means that they only last maybe a year because I get a lot of flats for work and I I wear them. I wear them out until they have holes in them. So I end up buying shoes more often. But then, what do I do with the ones that are now even more worn? Than, than they were when I bought them. If I don't, I mean, no one's going to want them. Do I throw them out? But then I'm contributing to the landfill. Mm-hmm. Ah, so now I, now I have this problem. <laughs> uh, but then also, uh, you know, as, as we've reached adult, <laughs> real adulthood and we're hashtag adulting, we're making other conscious, we, as in my husband and I, not like generally, uh, we make these conscious choices to buy certain things new and we 
pay a good price to get a quality item new because we want that item to last a long time. Right. So as I'm as I'm processing this, like we have these two like these two separate categories of of stuff that we purposely buy. We have this category of things like our new water filter that we got that was, you know, a couple hundred bucks um, and our bikes and some shoes <laughs> um, or things that that long term we want to last a long time. We don't want to have to buy another one. So we purposely will go find something that is high quality, high dollar, made well, um, that will last. And then there's this other mm-hmm. category that right now, at least I put my own clothing into. I might change that you know, as I process this more of things that I don't expect to last, that I don't, that I don't think I'll have around for a long time. So I'm okay buying them cheaply or secondhand um, or somewhat used and maybe marred a little bit because eventually I know I'm going to just put them back out the door and send them back into this secondhand world. But I don't know if that's going to be the way that I will still look at that. And then, then there's this whole other category of all the other stuff we have in our house that we don't need in our house. And part of the problem is, what do we do with it? You know, we, we can't give it to anybody. Nobody else wants it. But I hate throwing stuff away. So I'm not just going to put it in the trash can. But at the same, so at the same time, you pay a price for keeping it because you have to have a bigger place or more storage. Or, or it you just know, piles on the dining room table. <laughs> Right. <laughs> People underestimate the dining room table. It is a great storage spot. It really shouldn't be. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're like, you know, we need more shelving and we need more plastic tubs to put all this stuff into that we're constantly piling up. No. And, you know, and, and at some point since we moved to St. Louis, um, because moving with a lot of stuff is terrible. Yes, it is. Um, yes. At some point, we still have boxes of stuff from, from when both of us were in college. Uh, that we need to get rid of before we move again because we are determined not to move with it again because it's literally things we haven't looked at in 10 years. It's pointless. But we haven't gone through it yet. But now we're at a point now where we're not bringing in as much stuff anymore. And when things come into the house, we're making a decision on whether or not we keep it or we just try not to bring stuff in that... Uh, that we don't need, um, you know. It's 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 the we ask the question now when when we see something on on like Free Cycle, which is a fantastic place where you can get lots of stuff. We see something on Free Cycle and we're like, oh, that's that's really cool. I like that. But do we need it? Is it useful? If it's yeah. not useful, we probably shouldn't get it. And that is so key because it seems like as much as this book is about the afterlife of stuff. What the author seems to be encouraging us to do is think about the before life of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, to buy less for one thing, mm-hmm. um, to pay more attention to quality and demand, demand that manufacturers do a better job of making stuff that will last, whether it's for you or for your neighbor down the road who mm-hmm. buys it from your garage sale. No one wants that stuff falling apart immediately, but that will happen from consumer demand of saying, we're not going to pay $7.86 for a dress that we know is going to fall apart after five washes. Right. <laughs> it's not, we're not going to do it. But then also, you know, letting go of your stigmas when it comes to secondhand, be willing to buy it, be willing to give it away. But if something is near the end of it, like I used to call my house because we've always been secondhand buyers. And especially with kids, that's a really affordable way to do it. But I call myself the place where things go to die. <laughs> um, because we're oftentimes by the time they get through us, no one's going to want them. Mm-hmm. So I just have to deal with that. But I'm trying to be more conscious too about how can I do a better job of 
not letting things die on my watch, of keeping them nice, of mm-hmm. taking care of what I have so that I'll need less. And that is a that is a message too. There's a big difference highlighted in the book between the American secondhand industry and the Japanese one. And maybe Aaron mm-hmm. can speak to this, where the Japanese secondhand industry is much more based on the idea that the stuff will look new when it arrives at the secondhand store. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I think in America, we're much less um, careful about that. Mm-hmm. But maybe we shouldn't be. All right, ladies. Uh, I think that wraps it up for this book. Except I do want to touch just briefly. My question that I really wanted to talk about was question number six, mm-hmm. which is the last question. Uh-huh. We're talking, circling back around to this idea of identity. Because mm-hmm. this book was not, even though, you know, obviously it has some relevance for our, our church life. It's not a theological book. You wouldn't know you know, there's there's no religious or really a whole lot of philosophical um, insight in there. It's a journalistic reporting story. And we we then have to take the stories and, and figure out the theological angle. And I think what I would like us all to take away from this is that stuff is given you to steward. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. who you are. It's not, uh, you know, your identity is in Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the books on your shelf... Sorry, Brie, the artwork in your living room, <laughs> that's not who you are. I'm crying a little bit. Child of God is who you are. The You're rest right. of it is just accessories. And that, I think, frees us up to let go of our... The, the, we don't need to keep around these piles of stuff on shelves and in Rubbermaid tubs and whatever, because our identity, our memories, our past, present, and future, God's got that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can just rest in that. And then also there's this... This idea that uh, this life is not the end. Yep. Mm-hmm. We can't take the stuff with us, but the resurrection is coming. Eternal life is coming. That's where our hope is. Mm-hmm. That's where we will reside. And so we can hold our stuff very loosely, but also be more mindful of how we can steward those possessions so that they can really be a blessing to those around us, whether they're here or in Ghana or in Japan or, you know, wherever, wherever things end up, let that be a gift. So, yeah. all right. Are we ready for a new book? Yeah. Yep. Let's pick it. <laughs> I'm so excited. Good. Me too. Me too. And I don't, I never know where these discussions are going to go. So I'm going to be as surprised as everybody when we figure out what we're reading next. Okay. I have, as you, as per usual, I have two categories for you to choose from. One is fiction, one is nonfiction. So let me tell you, your fiction choice for this time around is literary fiction involving sisters. Well, that seems so an obvious choice. One. <laughs> <laughs> wow, don't sound so enthused, Sarah. <laughs> the second is cultural criticism for a post-Christian society. Oh, man, they both sound so good. <laughs> that, that one's nonfiction. I wish the post-Christian society was fiction. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this is up for you you three to decide what are we reading next, and then I'll give you some choices within that. I'm going to call fiction category. right away. I'm too scared about the other one. I'm really curious. <laughs> I'm not ready for that second one yet. But I think what? I'm in the mood for a fiction one this time around. Fiction it is, okay. man. Fiction. All right, fiction it is. All right, we have four books to choose from. And and actually, uh, I don't know how to, because literary fiction is sometimes hard to describe in in a one-sentence elevator pitch. Three of these books I've read. One of them Erin has read. She suggested it, so um, we'll put it out there. Book number one, Erin's suggestion, would be Barbara Kingsolver, The Poisonwood Bible. 
story told by the wife and four daughters of a fierce evangelical Baptist who takes his family and mission to the Belgian Congo in 1959. Ooh. So there's choice one. That sounds amazing. Amazing. Just wait, just keep wait. Keep going, keep going. They're all going to be amazing. <laughs> okay. So Who am I going to choose? <laughs> Since we had so much fun with Newberry winners with our first book, uh, this other choice would be Catherine Patterson's Jacob Have I Loved. <gasps> I love that book. Oh, you've Man, already. you're making this really hard. <laughs> okay, but you know, reading reading a book with people that you've never read it uh-huh. before, I love rereading books with people I can talk about them with. So this would be two twin sisters. One is, you know, this comes out a lot. One sister is the pretty talented better sister. And the other one is telling the story. So (laughs) (laughs) why is that always a thing? (laughs) Yeah, that actually is the theme of our of our third choice. too. (laughs) 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 Only that one, the, the one I just mentioned, the Patterson book takes place in one of the coolest settings ever. Um, an island in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay, yes. um, which is so, I mean, the, the scenery, the setting there is like a, another character. Then we've got our next choice. This is a book I read when I was way too young to have read it and really gotten it. So I'm going to read it again at some point, And I thought might as well give us a chance to read it together. C.S. Lewis, Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold about, it's a retelling of Cupid and Psyche from the perspective of Psyche's big sister, who is... Spoiler alert, not as pretty as Psyche is. <laughs> this is a really hard choice. Because um, I want to Okay, and the last CS one, Lewis. this one was oh, inspired by Sarah. Oh. Who said we should we should throw some Jane Austen <gasps> in the mix. Is it Jane So Austen? perhaps the greatest sister novel of all time, Sense and Sensibility, <laughs> yeah! is choice number four. I know my choice. <laughs> okay, so... Now comes the hard part, and I'm just oh going to sit back, gosh. and I will cast a tiebreaker if I have to, but you three be sisterly. And <laughs> I have an idea, Rachel. We should make a file in the Facebook group and just list all of the possible titles we've ever actually talked about That's reading. That's a good idea, that it becomes a... Because mm-hmm. and- we may not be able to ever read all of these in the book club, but they all sound yeah. so good, so I want to put yeah. them on a reading list. Or we need and to I like should, we need to like create a Goodreads for the Ladies' Lounge or something. I should put a disclaimer <laughs> out here that not all of these books that we'll read are necessarily strictly orthodox right. in all of the perspectives. They're yeah. Chosen because they give us something interesting to think and talk about. Right. I, I would not put uh, all these books through doctrinal review. Um, <laughs> as much as I respect and appreciate that process. They will not uh, pass. Because they're meant to be conversation starters. Right. Not to uh, provide you an authoritative source of doctrine. Right. So then that makes it sound scary. No, these are just good books. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I vote for Jane Austen. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Let's see how this goes down. Or C.S. Lewis. Or Or the first one. (laughs) Jacob, have I loved? That's the one you don't even want to do. I I don't. uh... Or that one. What are your thoughts? I love Jacob, have I loved? It's such a great story. (laughs) I don't know. You go. Well, I have read... I believe three of the four books. I'm not surprised. <laughs> you said Poisonwood Bible is meaty, meaty. It's meaty. I want to um, read that. I do love. I'm going on my to read um, list right now. It's. <laughs> it's I do love meat. Yeah. So it's not. It's not an easy read, but it is. It's really excellent. Let's do that. One. Um. 
So, and I'll tell, tell the listeners out there that I really, I really enjoyed it as an audio book. So, um, they've got a, they've got a really excellent narrator. If that makes, if that works better for your life to be able to read by listening, it's a, it's a great one. So there's, there's that. I also just recently finished Sense and Sensibility again, (gasps) and it was, it was one of those where I was like, I'm, I was getting near the end and I was, is, I couldn't remember how it was different than the Emma Thompson movie. And I was ah. like, did they change this plot point? They did. They did slightly change it. Uh, and so it, it was even better as the, as the written book. I, I will just okay. say if we don't choose Jane Austen, I'm still going to read it. So we don't have <laughs> yeah, to do. read it together. <laughs> I'm on a Jane Austen kick right now and Emma, the movie is out. So and actually, I think I've actually read all four of them. I just don't remember Jacob. I have loved as vividly by the description. I read so many Newbery award. That was one of my mom's super summer challenges. I so haven't, I haven't read that. I one. read so good. of, it's of so okay. great. Really. I'm okay I've with any it, of them. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> We are so out of time, though, so I'm going to just cast my... Okay, all right, all right. Do I need need to cast my tiebreaker? I think so. Okay, it sounds like... Let's go with Jacob Have I Loved. It's a little... What? not quite as... (laughs) Yeah, let's let's do it. Unfortunately, I left... (laughs) I'm going to have to buy a new copy because I think I left the other one. It's been so long (laughs) since I've read it. So hopefully it's as good as I remember it being when I was a teenager. This is another one that I think reading as an adult will be an entirely mm. different perspective on. Yeah. So are we happy with our choice? Yep. Let's do it. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. All right. Yay. Wow. Jacob, have I love. Let's go hang out in the Chesapeake Bay for a while. All right. Clam chowder. Clam chowder. That was not any accent. <laughs> nope. De- decipher. Clam chowder. So we'll, we'll have to like start making a full list of these though. Cause it, we, we get all these great suggestions and all of it, I don't know, all of us have our favorite books, too. The next book club book is Jacob Have I Loved by Catherine by Patterson. Catherine Patterson. It's going to be wonderful. Christian author. Wonderful. Um, so brings brings some sort of subtle theological overtones. Like, you're not going to find a lot of preachiness in her books, but you cool. will find some deep, deep philosophical questions. Like the book title. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, everyone, uh, find your copy of Jacob Have I Loved. It shouldn't be as hard to get as secondhand was for a lot of you who are on like a three month wait list at the library. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Scary true. Wah, wah. Uh, and then we'll we'll come together again in a couple of months and, and uh, talk about it. And this should be a good one. Apparently, yeah. it's a well loved book. So, Beloved let's do book. it. There's that. Thanks, Rachel, for all of this book discussion. This is going to be fun it's always great to, to dig into these books that we read together all together in the lutheran ladies lounge uh find the lutheran ladies lounge book club in the facebook group we'll have an event posted so that you can rsvp to that event and then all of the discussion will happen in that event i think that worked fairly well this time with just a few technical difficulties because facebook is facebook find all of our episodes at kfuo.org slash lutheran ladies lounge or on your podcasting app you're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Aaron. I'm Bray. And I'm Rachel. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge.